Well, hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast that seeks to plug some of the gaps between the church and the culture to look at, to explore, to kick around a bit some of the issues that I think sometimes the church doesn't always think about, and to do that from a perspective of theology and philosophy and apologetics and all those other exciting things. That's I'm a... I'm Andy Bannister, as I was last time. Actually, that hasn't changed. I'm joined by my uh, by my intrepid co-podcaster Aaron Edwards, um, wearer of beards, uh, raiser of five children, and author extraordinaire. Because uh, we'll come to this in a minute. But you've got a book out. This is very exciting. I do. Yeah, that's but- uh, extra. What is ex- I mean, author extraordinaire. What counts as an author extraordinaire? What does one have to do to qualify as extraordinaire? I don't I th- know. I think actually. it has to be an extraordinary version of that. So you're saying I'm an extraordinary author? Well, it could or... be extraordinarily useless book, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, extraordinarily useless. But, but I, pres- I think you need to have a significant amount to be extraordinary, don't you? Or a variety. I don't know what it is. Like, if I called you an apolo- apologist extraordinary. Which you have done, actually, in the past. Well, I've called you, you many names, but, you know. I think so. I don't know. Before we come to that, though, just, uh, I don't know how you're, you're finding it right now, Aaron, to go. We are in the middle of a heat wave. It's very exciting here in the UK. For UK uh, uh, listeners, you may remember this from a few weeks, because well, by the time this comes out, it'll be a few weeks between recording and release. But for American listeners and other parts of the world, you may laugh at this, that the UK temperatures here are hitting about 38 degrees a day and there's almost like a national sense of emergency because in yes. the in the UK we don't do weather well no. which is odd we have a lot of weather yeah but we don't do weather we well we talk about weather a lot we do talk about it well but you know I know when I went to Canada you know we lived in Canada for six years in the winter you'd have six foot of snow in Toronto in the summer it would regularly get to 45 degrees for you know a few weeks at a time and people like yeah yeah that's the weather we just roll with it in here but here it's like the snowflake falls and there's like everyone's running screaming yeah. in panic or the mercury rises into the high 30s like no way the world's going to end <laughs> And so it is. It is interesting. I've been back for six and a half years. I haven't fully adjusted to the to the kind of the strange psychodrama yes. that goes on with it's the British really, weather. It's, it's genuinely like if you had to do like a psychoanalysis of a nation, I do think we are more obsessed with weather than other countries because I think we maybe because it's, it's, it, there are so many like clear distinct seasons so we kind of almost like don't take my winter away from me don't take my spring or my autumn or my summer you you, you almost like adapt to it don't you but also I think we're because we're obsessed with getting winter sun holidays which I understand um, when it's very cold um, why don't we just rejoice in the sun I know it's a bit inconvenient but you know like when else yes. can you get well the funny thing is like I read that? something once that there is a there has been sort of studies done on the links between psychology and weather. I mean, if you look at things like, you know, countries like some of the, some of the Nordic countries with very long winters, they do have, a, there is a, there are mental health issues oh, that's true, actually. connected with yeah. that because it's dark yeah. for so long. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's SAD, um, yeah. seasonal affective disorder where you, yeah. where, where people genuinely have, yeah. you know, depressive, almost depressive episodes linked to lack of sunshine. And one of the cures for that is you sit under these sun lamps. To, yeah. So there is genuine link between. So I do wonder with that, to what extent the British national character is shaped by by the weather? It might make because we actually invented a heck of a lot of stuff. In this I thought you were going to say we invented weather. There was no weather until <laughs> the Brits. Right. Did you not know this? I read this in a, what the know, Victorians did for you. I read it in a British National Party uh, memorandum. I think they invented like, the weather. There was yeah. no weather until the Brits <laughs> came along. And, uh, that's right. And then everyone else just you know they just plagiarised the weather. You, plagiarized you go to weather. another country. I noticed you've got guy. You guys have got weather yeah, here as well. Yeah, that was ours. Look at you, Spanish, taking our weather. 
absolutely love it. I'm making it hotter, doing a better version of our weather. I mean, we well, had cold. I lived water. in Scotland for, for six years as well, and we have you know bizarre sort of form of toxic nationalism up there. And I and I was waiting for the Scottish National Party, who, who you know there is no such thing as a bad argument in their view. I was waiting for the argument, you know, for them to go all this bad weather. It's English weather. Yeah. If Scotland became independent, we would be in control of our own weather, <laughs> and we'd have better weather. All these rain clouds. Those are English rain clouds. I would not be surprised if that's the kind of argument. But um, you mentioned the plagiarism word there, oh, which yeah. I think is a nice segue to writing. You've got right. a book out. Not that you've plagiarised it, but authors right. don't like to be accused of plagiarism, don't like others plagiarising their books. You have done the opposite of plagiarism. You know, you've, you've got a book. Yeah, you know, they, don't be, they don't mind being, like, like being accused of it, but you know, they're happy to do it. As long as they're not accused of it, it's fine. Yeah. yeah so, have, so what's the book? It's very exciting. But, well, you mentioned the Nordic kind of... I did mention the, so the Nords. Nordic. It is on, it's on a, on a famous Scandinavian dude. Oh, the, what, the Ikea uh, magnate? Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. I, I'm a huge Ikea... No, I'm not, really not an Ikea fan, sure. Um, um, it's on Soren Kierkegaard, the famous uh, existentialist philosopher from the 19th century. So his uh, his dates are 1813 to 1855. So... Um, significant time in history in Europe in all sorts of ways and it was just fun uh, I've been working on him for uh, over a decade now in different ways and, and writing in an academic mode and try this book was, was is the subtitle is called well the title in fact is called Taking Kierkegaard Back to Church and the subtitle is uh, The Ecclesial Implications of the Gospel so it is it is an academic book but it's one that I hope is slightly more accessible but I don't know if many of our listeners are going to go rush out to buy it in fact sometimes when people um have contacted me really saying, oh, I'm, I'm reading a book. I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. Um, and if they're not academic <laughs> at all, I, I, I kind of think, don't get too lost in the footnotes because there are obviously some footnotey debates. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I still think I try to, as I, I try, a lot of academic books are almost written not to be read <laughs> at all. Um, oh, but, don't. Well, but, there's a whole argument there, actually. And and for people listening who are, who perhaps are academic mm. or are thinking of ever doing academia, so I've long had a thesis, Aaron, that to go, you can be a, a brilliant scholar and you can write really badly and have minimal influence. Or you can be a pretty average scholar, but write brilliantly and have amazing, huge influence. A good example of the of the latter would be someone like Bart Ehrman, who's written a lot of, you know, sort of sort of critical, mm. sceptical works about the Bible. With all due respect, I think he's a fairly mod he's a fairly run of the mill scholar, mm. actually. Um, but he writes brilliantly. Or Dawkins' right. book, Richard Dawkins' book, The God yeah, Delusion. Yeah. Right. I mean when I first picked that up, expecting it was going to be a real challenge. It was going to be a tough book to get through. Surprised how how weak the arguments were, but the writing was electric. He's a very gifted writer. Well, he's um, ju- he's journalistic, so it's not it's it is it is a good writer, but it's also it's just populist writing. So it's not like it's, think, it's, it's not no, 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 like no, no, I don't okay. think the God delusion is. It's obviously not an academic. It's, a, it's a, I think that's an example of someone using their academic credentials to well yes to, to, to yeah. write a book so of course so you're right i think the writing is good it's punchy and, and, and winsome but i think it's nothing to do with his that what his the, the kind of scholarship that he talks about it, it oh no i agree is, you've got so. you've got what some have called competency transfer yeah, yeah. going on but then you've got others who where those things mesh together yes. right so a writer i've admired for, mm. for years don't don't you know whether one agrees with all of what he said or somebody said or whatever and to nt Wright, i think actually is a good example of somebody who's got brilliant scholarship and is a very gifted writer, writes yes. well, yeah, yeah. and has had a big influence. So I think one yeah. thing I often say to students, and maybe you do the same with yours, is to really encourage them, pay attention to the craft of writing. Oh, yeah. Same applies to a sermon, actually. Yeah. If you pay attention to the craft, sometimes you think, sometimes particularly, perhaps in the more sort of, you know, sort of conservative reform circles, we think, well, it's all about the content, it's all about the doctrine. If we get that right, then mm. the job is done. Mm. 
but actually that's 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 obviously crucial but mm. also the work on polishing and, yeah. and writing well and communicating well so anyway well i mean on. funny i mean i i have i can't help but then make a, a reference to something i wrote about in this book actually this is, this is actually a plug about my book but i will say available well, for more good bookstores yeah, that's right yeah and, and, some and bad, bad ones and too bad yeah. Ones as well. <laughs> yeah that's right um uh, yeah so i i tried not to overtly plug amazon and, and someone on, on social media contact me and said and was like can i publicly said yeah where, where can i find copies of, of the book because you can find it on the shores of the longest river in the world so i'll give you a little riddle to go and find it which doesn't take very long um but um so basically you mentioned sermons and the craft so this is interesting because i absolutely believe in the craft of writing mm. and we'll talk about that um and in a really significant way I, I find writing really a wonderful process to do and it's really important um but kierkegaard himself and he was a really interesting thinker who had critiqued the church quite a lot in his time because because it was in, in a time which we called in, in danish christendom where everyone basically thought they were a christian and therefore, it was the hardest place he would say to be a Christian, because you couldn't, what well, he'd say, existentially in your own personal life, step out and say, "I follow Christ," because everyone's doing it. You're part of the crowd, so to be not part of the crowd um, almost meant to sound very different to how everyone sounded. And the, his biggest people he critiqued were the people who were actually interesting. You say this, Andy, so maybe he'd come. Maybe he'd attack you as a good, crafty apologist, because they were people who knew how to write sermons. They, they could write, they, could, they were like, it was like sermon factories because you, you could learn how to win people over with the right kind of mm -hmm. emotional persuasive spin. And actually there wasn't the heart behind it. There wasn't, there wasn't a real living, breathing individual human being behind this. I mean, he would argue, I mean, he was probably a little bit OTT some, some of it, but he, you know, one of my chapters is called Waddling Geese in the Pulpit, where he tells this brilliant parable about these geese who kind of come up to the, come up to the um, pulpit and preach a sermon to other geese about how wonderful the use of their wings are. And if only they could use you know, the wings that God gave them, they would fly off and become uh, great adventurers and explorers. And then all the people applaud this wonderful, beautifully constructed and crafted sermon, and then they waddle on home. And then every, every now and then someone like a, a goose comes on and says, why don't we actually use our wings, though? Why, why don't we actually do that? It's like, oh, well, you know, if we actually put that kind of thing into practice, you know, all sorts of trouble happens. Look at that guy. He kind of died, and this one over here. And so Kierkegaard's point is like, yeah, that's kind of what happens when you actually live Christianity. Things difficult things happen. things happen to you when you actually step yeah. out and so i think there's a danger when we treat writing especially christians when we treat writing as almost a way that it, it can create a distance between us and the, and the content of it so you think you're right to say that some let's say in, in more conservative circles might go i don't have to care about the communication at all um it doesn't matter whatsoever if i literally just have the bare bones of something i just chuck it out there and it will just magically do the work now i think there's a craft that actually is a stewardship thing there. We need to be thinking about how do we communicate. The irony with Kierkegaard, of course, is he was a brilliant writer um, and, and a very, very complex one in, in different ways. He wrote under different pseudonyms. And so he wrote books under different names regularly in order to have a different kind of effect. And sometimes he didn't yeah. fully agree with the things that he wrote, but he was trying to make a different kind of point. Uh, anyway, a whole other... Uh, kettle of fish but but it's interesting to you, you can critique writing you can critique the way that people can abuse it and misuse it whilst at the same time caring a lot about it obviously you know you well, that's can... right and i think um and i think yeah i'd be almost in one sense yeah the answer is that the answer is the you know the waddling geese thing i suppose is not mm. to say well there we therefore we just want you know terrible exactly writing yeah, yeah. a badly constructed sermons rather than to be thinking about how do we get the how do we 
you know, how do we think about, you know, in, commu- like in communication theory, the call to action, yes. you know, that people actually don't just hear. I mean, because, of course, the, the scriptures warn about, you know, people just want their ears tickled exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, rather yeah, than actually yeah. a response. But that's yeah, great. And um, so exciting. So there's a, we'll, put a, we'll put a link to your book in the show notes. So sure. the, uh, the many, many Kierkegaard fans who are listeners to this uh, show. And uh, a bit of trivia, by the way, I was at Theological oh, yeah. College with, I forget, what Linda was, she was a she was a descendant. She was a relation to to Kierkegaard. I think she was like a, like a sort of a great great grandchild of one of his cousins. But she, yeah, I was at, I was at college with somebody whose maiden name was Kierkegaard. Right. Okay. And so that that was uh, that was quite interesting because she was in her philosophy. She took philosophy at yeah. the theology. So I think it was quite that was I thought that was that was scoring special right, brownie yeah, points to yeah. have. It's quite quite impressive, and that kind of actually means churchyard. In it a, does, a yeah, of, I think so. I, it's sort of like a, or as in like graveyard, really, almost. I think so, I, I think I knew that. So it's exciting. Your books out, and I, and of course, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm editing a book right now, so I look forward to my next one. Yeah, uh, being out. Somebody once said there are no there are no good writers, there are no bad writers, just bad editors. Okay. Um, I remind okay, so my I remind my editor of, the... of that regularly of going if this book crashes and burns, mate, it's not my fault. So, well, um, well you're co-editor, so you are, you know. Well, well, yeah, you're possibly. now one of those bad editors, maybe. I could well could be. You? So, uh, so, so, so the writing, the, I find, uh, yeah, I've, I've, you know, this is my. What's the new book one about? So the new one. How many books have you done? Well, so actually, no, this is my third book. Third book. I, I have one coming out now. No, I have. And one, you've commissioned another one. You're more popular. So, yeah, so this is my, this is my fourth. I've done one. Mm. I've done one academic one, and this will be the third popular right. one. And this, so this one is called "How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot." How are you going to manage that? Because that's like your. That's, you, you always well, the funny thing that. is, my kids have got this running gag now. They're going, Dad, you, you always write these books that have one-word <laughs> answers. So my last book was, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And they're like, Dad, people don't need to buy that. They just need to, just yes or no, just no is the answer. <laughs> uh, and then with this one, my daughter's like, Dad, this is one-word answer, just what, or don't. Like an idiot. <laughs> but no, it's, um, it's, I think the subtitle, we're still working the subtitle, but I think it's going to be a, a practical guide to everyday evangelism for ordinary people. And it's going to start from the fact, the reality that most people are terrified about sharing their faith at work, home, at school, yeah. you know, and I talk about how I was when I was a young Christian. Yeah. And it's a part, part autobiographical. How did okay. I learn? Not to be an idiot. Not to be an idiot. The mistakes I've made. And then the other thing I do, because actually I think talk about yourself a lot is not good. I, um, the fourth chapter, I told the story of eight or nine friends of mine who, in different ways, just share their faith. I think very impressively and very naturally. And then I try and extract what are they doing, what are the tools that they're using, mm. and how can other people learn to do mm. do that? Because I think evangelism is for everybody. And the dangers in the church, we've sort of made it at times for specialists. Yeah, uh, we sort of think, well, okay, praise the Lord for you know John Lennox or Amy or Ewing or yeah. you know, glad there's people like C.S. Lewis who can write those books because I can't do those things. And it's like, well, you know, you can't do those things. You're not called to be those people, but you're called. You are called to be a witness and ambassador. Yeah, yeah, where you are. So, how do you get ideas? So, let's. We wanted this episode to talk, I think, a bit about, don't we? The sort of one thing I think people are always fascinated by writers. I know I was before I became did started writing. Now I'm like, well, actually, quite frankly, it's it's just hard work. Um, yeah. Somebody once said to me, I remember when I first heard this, I thought it was cynical. Now I think it's probably not cynical enough, which is that the greatest times in an author's life, the two greatest times in an author's life are when the book contract is signed and when the book is published. <laughs> yeah, Everything between right. it is just sheer hell. That's so true. Um, yeah. But I think people are always fascinated by writers. I am. I mean, even now, joking part, as a writer, I love meeting other writers. I love hearing what they do and yeah. how they do it. There's probably people listening to this who maybe are writers. You might, you know, be interested in that. Maybe people listening to this who are thinking, I'd love to have a go at writing. Because yeah. the great thing about writing, by the way, even if you never 
get a book published, just even learning to write well for yourself if you're journaling and being able to structure things. And there's a pleasure in writing, actually, even if the only people who see it are you and your friends. We also live in a world of blogs and opportunities actually to maybe introduce your writing to smaller audiences, but still to have an influence. So I think it's interesting to talk about how we write and why we write. Yeah. And, um, and then maybe, you know, are there some areas where we really need people to, to write? But maybe I'm going to be cheeky and fire this one at you then. So why do you write? There are lots of books out there. People have written books on Kierkegaard before. Yeah. In my case, people have written books on evangelism before. So why add to that, why that pile? Is it just self-aggrandizement? Is it just, look, I'm a, I'm an academic. I need to prove I'm an academic, so therefore I'm going to write. Or was there, did you feel the Lord lead you to it? Was there, you know, why, why did you feel the need to write that book? Well, yeah, obviously God gives me a, a tablet from heaven every time. Is that not how it works for you, Andy? Two tablets in my case, an iPad and a remarkable. Yeah, that's not how it works in the Christian world. It's funny when I went up before I actually, um, I guess, yeah, when I first became a Christian, I remember walking around a Wesley Owen bookstore and seeing all these books in the bargain bin. And I was quite naive. Literally, I think I'd only been a Christian like a month or something. And just think, gosh, there's so many books that have been written. And you naturally assume that all the books needed to be written. And in fact, you very quickly realise when you start reading some of them, that's not the case at all. And so because they're published <laughs> by Christian publishers, you think they've prayed about it, the author must have prayed about it, the author oh, must well. be in a church, and then, and there's there's some kind of... Just you know, as an aside on that point, sorry to interrupt, but it reminds me, Adrian Plass is a very well-known Christian yeah, yeah. writer and was quite influenced on me when I was younger. <laughs> quite a sarcastic sense of humour. He once said in an interview, he said... He said, much of what passes for so-called Christian, for, for so-called Christian literature in this country could go a long way towards putting Andrex out of business were it not forming supporting walls in Christian bookstores. And for American <laughs> listeners, Andrex is a, to- is a toilet paper company. And I think he was getting at that kind of idea that yeah. there is, there are a lot of bad books. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and there's and, a lot of good books yeah. too, but there's also a lot. And that's part of the Christian subculture issue, I guess, as well, because we sort of don't actually engage with culture very well. You well, historically haven't always. And we probably engage too much now in the wrong ways, but we don't, we don't engage it in the right way. Previously, there was a problem of Christians reading only Christian books. So they'd read Christian literature within Christian rather than reading secular literature, that kind of thing. Um, and it almost just surround themselves with that whole paraphernalia. And so there's obviously really important things that come from Christian books and we write Christian books. So obviously we want you to read some Christian books, especially ours. But, um, I think there's, you've got to be able to read wider and let, allow those books to actually help you mm. presumably, hopefully, uh, strengthen and deepen your love for the word of God and to, yeah. um, think more, more broadly about the world God's put you in and the, and the calling he's giving. So obviously some, some books need to be written because they yeah. go a bit deeper on a certain doctrinal issue or something. But some books really are just like, you get some authors who just spin out more and more books because there's another book to get out. And it does, you're right. It, it can be a bit self-aggrandizing. There's other books which I think don't need to be written, but, but, but actually the author, Writing is a really helpful learning process. And so you do learn a lot when you write. You do, you? When you have to f- formulate something, if you read a book, you don't know how much work the author's put in because they've had to cut out a significant amount that they didn't get into the book in their notes and oh, their thoughts. I don't cut things in my books. Yeah, you, that's why they're so bad. You know, you just release everything that comes to your head. Yeah, and it's stream of There's no editor. Yeah, but that's the thing. So so, I, so for me, I think it's like... You, your next book's on encouragement, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's right. A Theology of Encouragement <laughs> for, for Andy Bannister. That's the subtitle. Just uh, come on, guys. We're going to help him out. Actually, here. one of my... Um friend of mine called uh he's something many many people may have may have heard of called john john dixon who's a brilliant author I remember john telling a story that he wrote a book a few years ago on humility 
which is a big <laughs> challenge really to to because because you do feel I'm writing a book and my name is going to be in the front. <laughs> I, th- I can't think it was Zondervan, one of the big Christian publishers. They had the, their graphics department had some fun. So they knocked up a, when they were about to discuss covers with him, they knocked up a cover with, the cover was, was his face and it was Humility and How I Mastered It by John Nixon. <laughs> and they sent it to him and he was like horrified. He's like, you can't, you can't do that. And he's like, ha Superb. No, so I think that's helpful. The other thing I think as well in there, the other thing I think about, you know, why I write as well i think there's a couple of things i love your point about you learn something there is a real learning process i think there's also sometimes something that's been said in the past needs to be said again right because arguably you could go well, why preach sermons most sermons have been preached why doesn't the pastor just download find a copy of a sermon that you know uh you know take a martin lloyd jones sermon on a passage or something and just literally just pass it around on a sunday morning well actually go, by the way quickly kierkegaard also says you should in some of the sermons that were preached you should just that they may as well just get an actor yeah to, so, to perform a script exactly. that's literally what actually yeah. happens yeah. and i think the answer there is well the reason being is that somebody going over the material afresh in in a slightly different way um who's got more of a connection to the contemporary world is going to make people see some old truths afresh mm. you know it's, it's the idea of you know bring going into your storehouse and bringing out sort of you know new treasures and old treasures uh you know is that biblical metaphor yeah. so i think it's that piece the other thing as well that somebody once said to me when i was early getting onto writing um and this in a sense is the story behind my the book i'm just kind of working on that comes out you know in a few months time is that somebody once said to me look if when someone asks you what should i read on a topic and people often ask me you know what should i read on, on an introduction to evangelism i really want to get started i know i need to what should i read if you find yourself recommending five or six books because each one does a different thing well mm. there may be a time and there may be an argument for writing the book that does those five or six things yeah, yeah. because then yeah. you can say well actually this is a one volume book and one thing i'm always very careful in doing because I'm so, I don't like the whole platform piece that goes of being an author that you can feel you've always got to push yourself forward. And then also, obviously, you know, then recommend those other books. Yeah. So like at the back of the back of each of my books, I've always had a section where I'll do like further reading. And if you want to go deeper into this, you know, because this is an introductory book, yeah. you know, here are things to go further. And so this book on evangelism will do that to go. This is not the last word. Yeah. yeah. This is for some of you, the first word. If you want to go further, yeah. you know, read Randy Newman, uh, read Rebecca Manley Pippet, read, yeah. you know, but if my book can be a gateway to other really good stuff but then yeah. Oh, yeah i have a friend a really dear friend of mine a good old friend of mine in canada um who's an absolutely brilliant uh speaker and writer and, and thinker and uh, and john you know for years has refused to write books because like there's, there's there's too many of them yeah. even though many of us who are his friends are like john you've got so much that's fresh to say mm. but he's very much no there's enough books out there it's, it's it's difficult isn't it And it's genuinely depressing sometimes like i go and going through and seeing how many books that are out there and on similar kinds of topics and you kind of think how did you know, basically, when you when you pitch a proposal to a publisher, anyway, you have to go really round the houses and, sh- and showing that you know what books are out there within that field, and that you know precisely what your book, basically, why your book needs to exist. And so you get you can you can get used to sort of going, well, there's these ones, but mine's unique because I tell this one story. Well, oh, this this you know, day you just you just imply the others are just dodgy. You exactly. Go, well, there's <laughs> these three books, but this guy world well, was that rumor. I, mean, I had and, to do that uh, a few times. You know, I regularly use your books, of course, in mine. Well, Andy Ballas has done this, but obviously... Ah, of course, you know, there was that know, little episode yeah. with the... Uh, uh, <laughs> Look, know, listen to this episode of the podcast where he says this stupid thing. where he got yeah. cancelled. <laughs> That's right. But I, know, I remember Michael Otts actually saying, the late Michael Otts podcast. <laughs> the late Michael Otts. <laughs> <laughs> um, Once formerly of this parish. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, he did say that interesting story about Rico Tyson.
Tice, I think. He said to Rico Tice, as an evangelist, British evangelist author, um, you know, what book would you recommend, the best recommend to give to, to somebody who's not a Christian? And he said, the best book I would recommend is one you've written yourself, because then you can say to someone, um, hey, I've written this book. And I think that's a really good point, actually, to say, actually, you know, it's it's worth writing a book to give to somebody who's not a Christian, even if it's the smallest book that yes. you self-published on Amazon. Um but if, if you care about it and write it do it and do it properly, it's not actually that hard to get stuff done. There is obviously a stigma around self-publishing, which is a bit like, it looks a bit dodgy because you haven't had an editor. But, you know, there are ways around that. And I think increasingly the stigma is slightly changing. Like, I don't know if I could fully recommend that. But if you're just like somebody who's like, look, I'm never going to bother. I don't have a platform yeah. for a publisher to take me seriously because publishers nowadays just don't. If you don't have a massive platform, it's really, really difficult to get anything published. And, and you know, that's the challenge. So you, you got you with Solas. It's easy, it's easier you've got an agent and you can go you can go and approach publishing it looks a lot more the average person who might listen to the podcast thinking i'd love to have a book out i'd love to write what i think is helpful i'd love to give it to somebody who's not a christian yeah maybe self-publishing isn't exactly and of course in this day and age is also blogging as of course, as yeah. well which is also a way of doing things so mm. um so how do you how do you how do you write though what's the writing process because this i find fascinating even to this day i've been on my fourth book i'm always interested in hearing how what's the mechanics of how somebody yeah. somebody writes in fact i was at a I, I i looked in at a literary conference in oxford a couple of days ago because i was there speaking at something else and there was a conference happening at the same time for for christian writers and, and artists and i stuck my head to a couple of sessions and then, and then we then had a lot of fun rummaging around the bookstore because i found and saw came across one or two quite really interesting books on the craft of writing because i'm always interested in learning new new things in fact one of my favorite little books on the craft of writing you mentioned you mentioned in a previous podcast you mentioned doug doug wilson who, oh yeah yeah doug wilson's little book wordsmithy oh yeah really interesting little book on 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 the art of writing and yeah. there's some real nuggets yeah in there but have but just you know keeping mm. it with like you and i'd be interesting to sort of share with people what so what's your writing process because mm. everyone's is different so mm. how do how do you write what's the what's the what's uh, the what, yeah. any any kind of sort of methods tips yeah. ideas no, no, structures no, i mean it's interesting so first i'll first preface it by saying actually i did when i was um after my i, I did an ma course in creative writing when i was young you don't have to do that and actually i did that really because it was the literature I mean, creative writing can be dangerous when you merge it with theology. Absolutely. Can't you? Yeah, there um, are literally, I remember my, yeah, my, when my PhD supervisor, um, found out I'd done a main creative writing. He said, oh, you should have just read Rudolf Bultmann. I was thinking Steve Shaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Rob, Rob the, Bell. Yeah, others. Exactly. Yeah. So any basic, there are lots of liberals who actually are able to close nonsense in very good words and make it sound persuasive. That's kind of creative writing. The content, the doctrine is not very good. But yeah, but, but the reason I did that actually was partly because I'd done an English lit undergrad. And so it was the off the, at where I was, that was the, um, literature kind of offering for MA. So it was fun to do. And I did actually feel a calling to, to do writing in my life. So it was kind of a good, a good kind of, for me, it was an impetus having a deadline for, for essays. So you had to write portions of things and have, you had to reflect on them. You had to write essays as well alongside the creative writing stuff. Um, and I think having that deadline help for me is, is helpful because if I don't, I have endless ideas and I write down sketches of ideas all the time. So basically I have notes on my phone, which I have to take advantage of the muse, as it were, when it comes. So I have to end up write. I write like quite long bits on my phone. I end up having because I've not got a smartphone. I can't transfer them to a Word without texting them to some either a friend. I've got That's a friend brilliant. who for a while was um 
was my recipient. So it almost looks Love like, um, what one day it will look like he could probably sue me and say, ah, look, I technically, it shows that I've emailed. That I've emailed. This is you. my book. I had to pass it. So now, luckily, my, my wife has got a smartphone now. And so she, uh, we, uh, yeah, I can text her. So now she just gets a random text about some doctrinal issue or some creative thought and, and knows that that's not a me just deciding to have a conversation randomly about like the Eucharist in the middle of the day. It's, uh, she can just email it on to me. But that's important because if you don't do that, you naturally think, oh, I'll, I'll think of that later. And you just don't. And, and it's really helpful to have a body of material that you're always thinking and churning through. So writer, basically, this is one of the things I remember a visiting writer coming into this, this workshop we did as part of the MA years ago. And he said, I'm not going to, and this may sound very unprofound, but writers read, that's my first um, rule to you, writers read, and the second rule is, writers write. <laughs> and, and so writers have to be reading all the time and thinking, engaging, you have to be alive when you're reading. If you've got to read every, every book, you should be reading with a pencil behind your ear if it's a physical book. So you can write something down in the margins, or if you're, presumably if you're one of these crazy people who reads too much on Kindle, like Andy Bannister, I'm sure, uh, on your, on your phone, you have to have other mechanisms of engaging with your thinking. If you don't all have the brains that can keep everything in there, you should write it out, because I think that helps the process. It's not just a case of, oh, let me write it out so someone else can read it. It's actually for your own thinking mm. process, writing helps that. So yeah. you should have, any writer who publishes a nice looking book, uh, like when you publish your, your book on how to, what is it, how to evangelize without looking like an idiot. Um, that will be the product, presumably, of lots of other thoughts that mm -hmm. have actually come towards it that you've had to say no to. And so for me, that's a big yeah, part of it. I have, you have to have, not, not even just the editing, it's actually things that like just, yeah. you're almost like standing on lots and lots of other versions of things to get to the final version that you want. And so you have to have lots mm. and lots of prototypes and not be worried about writing badly and writing um, mm. sketchily in order to get to the to the goal. But that's just how I, yeah. the process often I think that's a lot of I used to have for some time actually um, and I occasionally rewrite it and stick it there. I, I, some, I sometimes had pinned on a post-it note to my computer. Mm. I forget who said this and it's um, but I, if you like it you could Google it. Somebody once said um, don't get it right to get it written. Yes. And there's something in that because I think one of the one of the things I learned early on similar to that and I think for people listening who are you know, thinking about writing or if you're trying to write and struggling one of the things that holds a lot of writers back is you self-edit before it gets to the page. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Just get it out there, yeah. even if it's you, even if the first draft is rubbish. Mm. And I was just looking up while you were talking the the, the exact title. I read a, a wonderful book um, earlier in the year on the writing process written by Anne Lamott, who's a writing very well-known writer and writing coach. Not a, not a Christian. Got some kind of faith, but you know a bit all over the place. But brilliant, brilliant writer. She wrote a very famous book. Uh, back in 1994, that's always yeah, reprinted called "Bird by Bird: Instructions on on Writing huh. and Life." And the uh, the title goes back to I think it's the story of her or her son had to write an essay on ornithology for biology at school or something, and he was struggling with this. And her dad, her, his grandfather, had said to him, "Dead easy, son. Just 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 bird by bird. Do it bird by bird." <laughs> and this idea of just writing, yes. you know. She talks about the idea that, you know, words make sentences and sentences make paragraphs and yeah. paragraphs make chapters. Yes. And just this yeah. writing is this art of just partly being able to put one word in yeah. front of the yeah. other. And the first thing I think, and I think a lot of people, it sounds obvious, but I think when I talk to people who come to me and will like, some of them say, Andy, you've published books, how do you do it? And you talk to them and go, they've got these really big ideas and they want to get it all organized and then it'll be perfect. Yeah. And then they're going to write the, the great American or British novel or the theology mm. book will mm. change the world. But they're stuck because they're trying to get it perfect yeah. and just get the thing writing. Yeah. So, yeah, similar to you. I don't yeah. – um, yeah, jotting things down. The, per the person I, who, who's the master of this is Alistair McGrath, actually. I remember once asking Alistair how he wrote because uh, he, he's very prolific. 
And he said, well, he said, one of his secrets is that he said, lots of people waste little chunks of time. And he said, I've taught myself how to use little chunks of time. So if I'm queuing at the coffee shop and I've got a couple of minutes, rather than pull my phone out and check the news or pull my phone out and play Angry Birds, I'll pull, if I, I'll pull my phone out and try and write a sentence or a paragraph. And then, like, yeah, file yeah, it away. Yeah, yeah. So, because yeah. then, so you keep doing that, yeah. it builds up. But Absolutely. what happens is most of us throw those bits of time out the window. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you so can I've, totally redeem those times. So I found that, that happening. The other thing I found for me that, 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 that is, has been important is finding writing <clears throat> space. Um, you know, finding, because we're all got busy lives and things and, and, yeah. and carving, actually carving space out. I know some people like, say, Alistair, who can write in the coffee shop queue. I can't do that, but I have mm. found, well, I can carve time out. I can, I can carve a, an hour here or a couple yeah. hours here. And then the other, the other thing that works for me when I write is figuring out when is your most creative time. I think yeah, it's a big right. issue as well. I remember going to yeah. a time management course years ago yeah. where they talked about, uh, red time and green time. That's right. And all of us have green time where we're the most productive. Yeah. And, and actually this is a more, this is a more widely they were talking about in business, but it applies in writing too, I think, and ministry and all kinds of things. The things that require the most emotional and intellectual and, and physical energy in your job uh-huh. or your, or your daily routine or whatever, it's not always possible. Where it is possible, figure out when are you most productive? Is it, is it like 10 o'clock at night? Is it yeah. six o'clock in the morning? Do what you can to protect that. Yeah. And, uh, and so for me, first thing in the morning is is writing. So when I'm when I'm when I'm when I'm in the season of writing a book, yeah. I will you know reorientate my day slightly. I've got a family who are really helpful because I work from home. My family are brilliant at that. My colleagues are brilliant. I mean, I yeah. couldn't write without them helping. Go okay, we know Andy's writing a book right now. So like you know between nine and twelve o'clock, Monday through Wednesday, we won't disturb yeah. him. Yeah, and 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 carving up that, taking that discipline to figure that out. Um, and and what's, what sort of time in the morning? You say so nine, for me, nine, yeah. yeah, it's sort of nine till twelve is okay. when I when I can be. Yeah, I, I find after lunch, I everyone is done after lunch. Well, actually, I know other writers people, often. Like, writers, uh, writers often. Writers often are. And actually, yeah, I think I, th- I think <laughs> Alistair McGrath actually to mention him again. I think Alistair said to me that his writing time is like between six a.m. and nine a.m. Yeah. So he gets up early. Yeah, and it's yeah. a discipline, Absolutely. but he can write huge. Amounts. Similar, my wife has a as a friend of hers in in Scotland who writes fiction. And, and writes a lot of fiction. She writes, a, she, sounds amazing, but she writes about, a, it's roughly a book a week. And she, she works for a publishing company who, who churn out a lot of, I'm not going to say formulaic because that's derogatory. They are, you know, but, you know, romantic kind of no, novels set in the Middle Ages. Am, you know, quite am, lo- I allowed, am I allowed to say it sounds formulaic? Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, my point <laughs> being. I a book a week. My point. Well, but yeah, if you're writing within a, within a, within a formula, within I suppose a form, you can. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, look at Eni Blyton or something wrote hundreds of books, or Agatha Christie wrote vast yeah, amounts yeah. of books. There is a, um, who was it? Uh, Barbara, what's the name? Who wrote many, many, many books? And um, and so there's a degree there. But what's interesting, she's she's another one who watching how Izzy's disciplined herself. I think is again first thing in the morning. Yeah, you know, can get a lot done. Can do five thousand, sure. six thousand words a day or more. But I would argue that that if you have work within a certain remit, a formula, that that is easy. It is easy. For most people, not, you don't have that. I I had um, a professor on uh, undergrad who. Um, it was, a, it was a novelist and he, uh, I think one time he got on the long list for the Booker Prize. So he was pretty good, but he said he, he when he was a full-time writer, because that time he was like a professor talking yes. about writing. But when he was a full-time writer, he said he lived in London and he got up at, I think it was 4.30 every day. And he would write from 5am till 9 a.m. similar to McGrath I guess but yeah. from five he said the reason he did that and then he would after that and he go then he go and read 
in the British, he'd go to the British Library mm. and read until about two or two p.m. and then his day was kind of done and he'd relax whatever. But he said that process was the only way he could get things done. Yeah. But the other thing he said about that was, you the next day in the in the cold light of the morning you're much more brutal on yourself. So if you look at what you read the day before, which you thought was fantastic. Especially if you are also, you might dip into some writing in the mm-hmm. evening again. And at night, I, I personally find writing in the evening far more creative. Some people aren't, they yep. kind of wake up more or they're, <clears throat> they just feel, things feel more profound in the evening. I don't know why. We're having a chat about charismatic church services, weren't we even recently? How, how, um, sometimes we were at a conference in the summer where it went on late and you were like, oh, I, I'd rather it kind of cut off at a certain time and, and others actually say no they, that's actually when they feel a little bit more open creatively and that can be the same for writers um, but with that can also come an uncritical way of thinking so you think oh this is the most brilliant thing I'll just send it off to the publisher at midnight it'll probably yes. be the manifesto the Jerry Maguire manifesto and in the morning you, you might come to it and go oh my goodness I can't believe what I thought was so profound and so there's something about the cold light of day which is helpful there is I think that's right the one thing I would say though about that is also, of course, the whole process of how you, how you then edit yourself. Yes. As well, as we talked about, editing is 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 crucial. I don't know how you find this, Aaron. One set, a couple of things I found really helpful around that because I think I think editing the wrong way can kill writing because mm. you know, right? If you writing can be a bit like nurturing something, you know, you plant a little wee flower and you're trying to nurture it into life, and of course, you know, there's a lot of sort of smaller plants you have to you know put in a little pot and and grow inside before they're ready to go outside. I think some writing mm. can be can mm. be like that. And so one thing I've learned to do. Is I, I edit on a chapter by chapter basis. So don't don't start until I've got until I've got a chunk of writing ready to go. Don't start editing it because otherwise you start going, oh man, that's awful. Mm. Um, I always feel chapters are terrible when I'm halfway through them. Then when right. I get towards the end and I can come back and see the thing as a piece, it's helpful. The other thing, yeah. a piece of advice I was given. Now I know others are maybe different, um, but again, just for in terms of what works for me, is. This is particularly in creative writing, if you're writing fiction, uh, but I think there's also, it can apply in, in non-fiction writing, is don't show your writing to too many people at first. I remember hearing, I think it was Terry Pratchett, who is, you know, one of the, by sheer numbers, one of the greatest British novelists of the mm. last hundred years, and it's a volume soul. I love I love his writing. He's a very, he was a very gifted, uh, you know, comic and satirical writer. Mm. And he talked about, he said, he made, I mean, he said, I mean, so many people who, who, who want to write a story but what's happened is they've told their story to so many other people. They've scratched the itch. A story yeah, wants yeah, to be yeah. told. You need to you need to focus that needing to be told onto the page. Uh, and when it's written, you tell as many people as you like about your great story. Yeah. But if you go around blurbing out to everybody, and actually it was interesting. My it's last book that I just wrote mm. early on in that, my my editor at the publishing company had sort of said, "Oh, maybe you could send us sort of three or four chapters at a time as you go." And I wrote back and said, "Actually, it was okay. Can we wait until I'm done?" Yeah. Because I having somebody else tinkering around, way. Yeah. even if it's really positive, even if you're going, oh, this is brilliant. The danger is I then get cocky and I'm like, hey, man, I can really write. Yeah, yeah. Equal if you start going, oh, I'm not quite working. Now I'm second guessing myself. Yeah. I need to, I need to keep it to myself. Even from my family, my wife didn't see the manuscript for the last book until it was done. Yes. And then I, she was the first person who read it through completely, and she gave me some feedback. But sometimes I think sometimes we cut things off too early because we mm. start nitpicking them to pieces that also means yeah exactly because it, it also means that you're sending it to someone whether it's like a loved one or a critical friend um 
or very critical friend if you send it to me Andy of course um, well, like a yeah, friend I'm not sure I'd use that <laughs> yeah, very critical friend um, and, and actually you're sending them the best right you're sending them yes. the best version that you think it's now the best it could be for what you could do with it now they may come and go actually I've got some really helpful feedback and they go oh thank you so much that's helpful but you've got a structure to work with I think the reason people sometimes probably do sometimes send stuff out early chat and piecemeal is because if you did if you were inexperienced and you were going down a certain track and, and an editor can early stage can go hmm if you keep going down that track, it may just be a waste of time. That would be quite devastating. If you then had your whole thing and then someone said, oh, yes. it's complete. You, if you'd only asked me here or here. So I think having some initial chats can be okay, but I think you're right to say the scratching the itches are really helpful because you don't want to undo that. For example, my... Um, my 10 year old daughter is writing a. Yeah, told her, told her. Yeah. So, so she's written 42,000 words, right? <laughs> yeah. She's writing a novel, yeah. Um, and she started it at Christmas um, and has just been writing. And I've been really encouraging along. So we have every evening, I'll be like, she's like, Dad, can I do some? She's really excited. Can I do some editing time? Can I do some writing time? So I'll give her sort of 45 minutes at the laptop where she can do it. And I've been helping her, teaching her how to type properly. At first, she was doing the kind of, you know, what do, what do we call that kind of typing? Finger typing. Finger yeah. typing. Um, and so teaching her how to sort of make the best use of the time. I couldn't believe it. Like every time I pop in, I'm like, goodness, you're at 20,000 words. Amazing. So I'm trying to encourage her. She's desperate for me to read it. And I keep saying, I don't want to see a single thing because firstly, I'll come and try and edit all your grammar. And actually, this has got to be your book. So I will give you tips. I'll, I'll tell you things that are just actually objectively wrong, <laughs> like spelling and things like that. But actually, there's ways that you'll want to put things. And I'll give you, and I said, oh, here's some tips. Don't overdo adverbs. Okay, so... That's when, that's when you describe how something is happening. So Andy's currently, this is actually true, ladies and gentlemen, Andy's currently chewing on his glass, his sunglasses. Thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. Or he's chewing on them pretentiously. He's pretentiously, he's thoughtfully, pretentiously and carefully, thoughtfully, carefully, slowly chewing upon his Whereas sunglasses. Whereas if I just say Andy was looking out the window, chewing on his block glass, on his block sunglasses, um, I, I, you can decide if he's pretentious or thoughtful. It, by how I describe the scene. So okay. I try and tell her, I give her some tips in general. The related thing, by the way, in terms of writing tips, mm. uh, as well, that was given to me, and I, because if anyone's read my books, you'll know I use kind of metaphor and illustration quite a lot. So I play with creative writing mm. a little bit. Another great tip, actually, and you may have given your daughter the same one, is the, oh, is the whole idea of showing, not telling. Yes, exactly. So rather than saying, yes. and he sort of sat there and thought and considered what Aaron had said, you might say, Andy chewed on his glasses for a moment and looked out the window. And then replied, "Yes. Well, you've create, you've shown that I've been thoughtful, rather than gone. I've been. And so that's right. And yeah. so, the, and a very early amateur mistake that a lot of writers make is feeling they tell us everything. Yes. Like you know, John was upset. Well, don't tell us he was upset. Yes. Show us it. He that's slammed right. the door. He, you know, right. yeah, yeah. You know, got in the car, rev the engine exactly. hard. Because that's how real life works. People yes. don't tend to go around and go, oh, I'm very angry. You yes. see that they're angry. So show not telling yeah, is I had, really important. Absolutely. I think I might, might mention them before, but I've got." We, I do. I run a creative writing course at Cliff College, actually. In theology, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that, yeah, yeah. All those uh, yeah. heresies coming out of the Methodist Church, <laughs> that's, they that's come a, from his class. That's the actual, uh, yeah, just, just, that's just the theology. But no, yeah, there's people who actually want to come and do creative writing um, in a sort of missiological way. So they want, it's not that they're writing Christian, overtly Christian stuff away. So someone's writing poetry, like I think I, I mentioned, that there's someone who rewrote one of Tolkien's um, short stories and, and she rewrote it as a play which is really interesting and added kind of details to it um, which is really really interesting Leaf by Niggle yes so I love that story. so she rewrote that as a play and I was so part of her th uh, assignment was to write that a segment of that play and then reflect on the writing process so and one of the things I, I tell the students regularly is that show don't tell thing and you would I, we all do it because we are writing we're desperate to show people how much we've thought about what we're writing about so if you've thought that Andy is thoughtful and he is, as he's chewing on his, on his sunglasses, 
you kind of want that to be shown. You don't want someone to miss it, and so you kind of put it in yeah. there. But actually, it's it's the confidence to go. I'm going to restrain myself and cut that down. Actually, it's so much more effective if you say less. Less is more. Kind of I think thing. so. Exactly. On, on the less is more thing, by the way. I think the other thing as well. We should. This is this is great. This is like Aaron and Andy's writing tips. The um the other thing that I think where a lot of people go wrong, and they go wrong actually in, in all forms of writing, whether it's you know writing I think um, non-fiction stuff, or it's writing fiction, or writing for things like sermons and blogs and so forth, is um you you know you create a, a, a part of the thing that you've written. It's the piece that you're the proudest of. You've written this like short story. You've written this sermon. You've written this chapter for your you know, great work on Kierkegaard. You're like that. That paragraph there is amazing. It's absolutely wonderful. It is. I'm so proud of that. Thank you. Thank you. But actually, the dirty little secret is it needs to go. Mm. And what can sometimes happen is you then start editing one or two things. Either as you start editing yourself, you can go. Well, it doesn't really fit. But I love it so much. Yes. I either keep it in yes. and it clunks, or I try and start bending other things around it. Or what happens is you get an editor, and an editor points out, "I don't think that works." Yeah, and then you get all <clears throat> defensive, and 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 you know, it's funny actually. I I went talking to my editor recently, who who made some comment. He said, he, "You know, just just being complimentary." He said, "You you know, he said I really enjoy working with an easy person to write because you take feedback." Hmm. And I didn't realize that's a thing. And he went, "No, trust me. Some authors you say." I think that paragraph needs to come out. And they're like, how dare you? That was mine. Yeah, Whereas yeah, you tend yeah. to go, oh, all right then. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll debate with my editor. Yeah. And there's a phrase that I was taught early on in writing. Um, and I forget, and again, I forget who said this. It's the idea of killing your darlings. Somebody once yeah, said, as a writer, you need, to, thank yeah, you, you yeah. need to be killing your darlings. Um, in fact, there's actually a great band, a great folk rock band called Darling Side. Oh, really? Yeah, which is on uh, there. And the idea of killing your darlings is often it's those passages are the ones you need to kill. Yeah, that's right. Um, the other person I saw talk about this, which was ironic, because then he went and broke all the rules in his later career. Um, Peter Jackson, the film director, oh, yeah. who did the Lord of the Rings movies. You know, I think particularly the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers and their cinema releases yeah. are really good because they're tight. Yeah. And he talks about there are scenes in there that he loved that had to end up on the cutting room floor. Danger is that you... The, the, not killing your darlings can be a mistake for the for the for the newcomer and the amateur. It will also be an even more mistake for, for the for the for the experienced pro because I think Jackson in Return of the King and then in the Hobbit movies is so important to this point. You know, I'm a great famous director. I, I've made a multi-billion yeah. franchise that there are scenes, quite frankly, that needed to be killed. Yeah, I think that's and true. And the thing gets inflated. Well, the way they strung the Hobbit. Which is a, yes. a smaller book out into three films. It's incredible, really. Yes, there was a great <laughs> review of that of that of that of that, of that, of that movie in um, in Wired magazine, where they and the title of the review was an unexpected failure, oh, right, um, yeah. which is funny because you think if you know the Hobbit, the first chapter is an unexpected party. Yeah, and they make exactly that point to go. This is a story that that's a, you know, Lord of the Rings is three books for a reason. It's a it's, it's an epic. Yes. If Sauron wins, the whole of reality. Yeah. is destroyed. Everything yeah. ends. Darkness falls. Yeah. The Hobbit, on the other hand, is about a bunch of dwarves who need to get their treasure back from a dragon. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, a smaller... Right. It's a smaller... Which equally, that applies, I think, to everyday writing, too, of going, you know, maybe you've got a listening to this, you've got a great idea. Maybe for some people, the great idea deserves to be a book. Mm. Maybe some great ideas deserve to be a blog post. Yeah. And be willing to be... Or a tweet. It or, can be all of them, by the way. It, it can be it can, Yes, it can. You can write a tweet. So sometimes I, I, write, I, I respond to someone in a tweet and I think... And I think I could expand on that, and I might make a thread, or then it might become a longer post somewhere. It might become a blog post, and then the blog post might become a journal, or a thought for a journal yeah. article, and the journal article might be a chapter for a book. Yeah, that can um, work. So I think so generally that that it, it depends on how you how you can connect material, yeah. and whether there's enough. Have you come across? You see that what you're describing there reminds me. Have you come across in creative writing because you do more in the creative writing area than I do? Have you come across the snowflake method in writing, which is quite big? 
I've read a couple no. of articles on it. It's a, the guy who came up with it is a book. Well, a snowflake, if you look at it magnified, looks like you know a series of lines yeah. dividing from each other. So the snowflake method, you start with the initial idea, like with Lord of the Rings, you might say, um, you know, there's a destroying the magic ring of Sauron. Mm. But then you would draw a line off that go, okay, so who are the main characters? Yeah, and what's okay. the threat they're fate? And you keep adding lines onto, right, and right. you end up with this expanding diagram. Yeah, and yeah. then you get to a point where you're just right. Yeah, but it's the yeah. idea of going one step at a time. And you and exactly like that, yeah. going, well, I've, I've, here's a tweet, and maybe I can expand that a bit, and a bit yeah. further, and a bit further. Because it's so the germ of an idea, isn't it? Yeah. Idea. So the I snowflake mean, method, yeah. if you, if you, it sounds yeah. like it's something woke, but it's not. If you Google it, there's, uh, there's, there's books and articles. <laughs> Andy Bannister's snowflake method. Method of producing snowflakes. But yeah, no, I think I think that's a good, a good point. I, I would worry too much about uh, formalising in advance, because... You can't always find the diagram of the story. So, so the interesting thing with with Tolkien, of course, he I mean he wrote a language though before he even wrote all the back all the, the world story. creation stuff. So yeah, so he he had this awareness of how deep this world was going to be before he really went into it. So if you write a thing about fiction, I do think you need authenticity. Whatever you do, whether you write, you have to have to authenticity within fantasy. It has to be something that's actually. Was it Mark with... Twain who said you, you know you need authenticity? If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it, it has to. That, that's, it has to correlate with real life, with what people are actually thinking about and going through. That could even go for non-fiction stuff, of course. If you're thinking about theologically, you do have to talk and, and, and think about things that are, that actually matter. We've talked on this show about this before. You know, I get really sick of, I guess, some of those prominent Christians even talking about things um, as though there's a certain caricature, straw man, bad guy that we're needing to sort of attack or challenge. When really, there's a, there's one you're completely missing and forgetting about, and you know you're you're forgetting about it. And it's the elephant in the room. But let's talk about the easy target, and and that, even that is yeah. that switches some people off. You're like, no, I just don't think you get it. You're not really actually living in the same world that I'm living in. I don't think. Yeah. Or you're not looking at the challenges, or you're you're willfully ignoring them. So there's a, a sense yeah. of authenticity of really writing for the world we live in, and, and the kind of things that today people living today can actually uh, connect with. And I think. Um, one last, um, one last sort of tip on writing that I was just thinking about writing method and stuff as you were talking there. And one last one that I've been trying to practice really in the last two years has been very helpful. And then I wanted to talk a bit about, I want to really talk about the creative writing thing because I think, I think we've got Christians writing great works of apologetics and theology and all kinds of other things. But I think there's a gap in the creative writing area, which would be interesting to talk about for a few minutes. We've got about sort of 10 minutes left to the top of the hour. But talking of creative writing, one thing that somebody put me onto a couple of years ago, and I can't believe I'd kind of missed this, somebody said to me, well, firstly, the importance of right of reading when you're, if you're a writer. So mm. Douglas um, um, Wilson in, in Wordsmithy yeah. talks about that. He says, actually, we, firstly, you need to start reading lots until it spills out of you. And yeah. then you need to stop reading, start writing. But reading's important, always digesting. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, someone said to me, you know, Andy, I recommend you start reading more fiction. Because, mm. you know, because like you, I'm a thinker. So I read, I read, I was reading predominantly... Um, Philosophical arguments. Yeah, or a whole range of stuff. I mean, not just, you know, some philosophy, theology. I read a lot of nature writings. I love right. the outdoors. And so I read widely, which yeah. I thought was enough. He was like, no, no, you should read, read some fiction. Read some of the classics. There's a reason they're classics. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I read Lord of the Rings quite regularly. That was about the one bit of fiction. So one of the things I've started doing is trying to read a little bit more, more, uh, more, more, more wide in terms of fiction because you'll learn, you know, you actually learn perhaps almost more about how to craft a paragraph or a sentence or a metaphor well from those things. And it also just keeps the tank fresh as well. And I, so I found mm. that. Yeah. I found that interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in one sense, I've been quite eclectic this year. I mean, you know, I've done some serious 
sort of stuff, you're more heavyweight fiction. Yeah. Um, but then literally, you know, January this year, I read my way through all of J- Ian Fleming's James Bond novels because I like the movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've never read the books. And Fleming's a brilliant writer, absolutely brilliant writer. And I learned yeah. quite a few things. Out of, That's an interesting way to, you know, to, to craft a paragraph. And, and huh. he's a master of really short description. He doesn't have spare adverbs. And to yeah. keep fast moving. Yeah. And so, yeah, so anyway, it doesn't, I'm not suggesting you need to go do that, but I'm suggesting, yeah, again. And the same, I think, goes for preachers. And things oh, yeah, are going. Yeah. Don't ju- don't just don't just read, you know, books of theology. Read read fiction. Read poetry. Read yeah. stuff that's really going to fill you up. But can we talk? Let's talk creative writing. Sure. Because because that say so you've done, you've thought about that. You've studied that. You've got a daughter who's writing. Yeah. To go. Why is it we don't see more Christians writing novels? They do write novels, but of going, given that. The biggest influential, the most influential books in society are not going to be. You are not going to go out and write some amazing work of Christian theology or apologetics. It's going to be read by millions, and yeah. tell them what to do. But novels do. I mean, look at the Harry Potter novels in living mem- in recent memory, yeah. Um, yeah. or you know, you know, historically Lord yeah. of the Rings or other kind of things of going. But there's lots of you know, most people who are not thinkers who are going to buy a book are going to read a story. Yeah, and human beings were wired. To engage your stories, Jesus used stories, mm-hmm. but it does feel there's there's a slight dearth of this in yeah, the church definitely. at the moment. No, I agree. I, I think that, I mean, I, 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 you saying that's fine. I think uh, people used to say that in the emerging church days of the early noughties. I used to be, oh, come on, stop it, please. Like they, like they, they OTT'd on it. And I, I'm someone who loves story because I studied literature. So uh, I'm always wanting to read fiction and, and, and write poetry as well as read poetry. But, um, I think we had some of people overdo story when they're not doctrinally sound. So yeah. often you get people who just talk about that because they're like, oh, I just don't, I don't like all that kind of doctrine stuff because it's really because they actually don't like doctrine um, and they don't like, or they don't like sound doctrine. So they, they, if, they, if they put it in the story, they can make things more vague. So I think you mentioned there aren't many things out there. Well, there was, there was the shack. There's the shack. <laughs> and, and that, that went, you know, you know, astronomically um, high in terms of the sales charts. But the, doc- the, doctrine but the doctrine was a little bit yeah. wobbly. Yeah, people didn't mind it. They were almost like, oh, it doesn't matter that we have like a modeless trinity or whatever because, you know, because it's such a lovely story or whatever. And I just, I, and I just, you know, the Da Vinci Code was also another one on the other side of things, critiquing. Yeah. Everyone read that and found it interesting. So, of course, you, I think you're right. Like Lewis and Tolkien are great examples of where you can actually marry the two together but it comes from properly embedding yourself in the craft and the art as well as in, in sound theology, ideas yeah. so they had really good theology but also and also good virtue in how they sort of thought about the world that they were wanting to engage with that and the one and the, they knew what was wrong with the modern world they were in and they knew yes. what was right about the, the ideas that they were sort of bringing yeah. from other other areas as well, well so i agree I exactly that, so um you know one person who's who, who's helped me a bit in this is so i've mentioned I've mentioned, I think, at least once on the podcast before. So Andrew Peterson, who's been quite an influence on me recently. Mm. So he's a, an American singer-songwriter and also novelist. Wrote the Wing Feather, uh, a series of novels, which is amazing, kind of you know young adult um, kind of fancy novels. He wrote a really interesting book a few years ago on writing and creativity called Adorning the Dark. And I love the metaphor that we live in a dark world, and one of the one of the jobs that God has called Christian artists and writers to is to adorn. The dark to hang lanterns yeah, yeah. in the dark to point people yes. to the ultimate light and i think he would completely agree with you but i think he'd also say the other mistake christians sometimes make is feeling they have to shoehorn the entire gospel oh, into the totally. story that yeah, unless yeah. i can re- risk i can redo narnia yeah. and and tell it all as 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 as, as, as allegory then somehow yeah. i failed rather than going can we not just also tell very good stories yeah that have some redemptive qualities in them that aren't heretical yeah. by all means not heretical yeah, yeah. but point to the bigger yeah. thing because 
then we can light some lamps. And also, then also, of course, as a Christian writer, as a novelist, you get influence. Yeah. And I think just imagine what it'd be like if you yeah. know J.K. Rowling, for example, who's who's got some kind of sort of Christian faith, but it's fairly nominal. I mean, you can imagine that she'd been a know you know on fire Christian. Well, she's yeah, she's talked Did about she? this more yeah. recently actually when she's come under right. fire with some of the trans stuff. Actually, right. she's she's been a bit more sort of willing to sort of talk about that. But I think Christo. it's yeah. But right. I mentioned she had been more gusto. Yeah, the influence that's been had and I you know I and then of course Lewis I mean famously I know, I know again of course that was allegory but I've, I've come across one I came across somebody who came to faith through the Narnia books and the, yeah. the hilarious thing because they didn't know the Narnia books were Christian it was one of those yeah, and it was only yeah. when they talked to some they mentioned to a Christian friend how much they love the stories their friend had gone well yeah. you know what that is don't you and they were like what uh, what is the Jesus story and they were like no come on and they are like have you not read the gospels yeah. and they read the gospels and were like oh my word but actually, they said Narnia had prepared the entire ground for them. Yeah. And it was all the Gospels did was go, it was effectively went, well, Aslan is real. This is yeah. Aslan. This is how, how it And works. in a sense, all, yeah. the, all of the things that you see that are beautiful in the story, actually, you can, uh, you can have. We are recording this in a car park, by the way. So you hear, a, <laughs> hear that sort of sound of an engine starting. That's not, that's not Aaron's brain. Just uh, that he's, he's that, the V8's fired up. That, that, that's, that's you indirectly. That's Andy telling a story to get some more patron subscribers, actually. If we, we wouldn't have to record in a car park if we sent some more money for some big okay. studio somewhere. Anyway, but no, I was going to add uh, on the point of stories. The re, the, what stories do, they are indirect. Um, and actually, that's something, going back to Kierkegaard, that's something, he was someone who wrote and a phenomenal amount of books under different names sometimes with a mixture of creative mm. and non and, uh, and sort of uh, didactic fiction prose um, and and I think you, you do need to think in that way sometimes when you're trying to get a message across especially when you think people are not likely to hear it so in his day he because he was dealing with Christendom he felt actually the way to, to critique Christendom I can't just go and tell them you're wrong I have to actually show them they're wrong in different indirect ways as well as overt yeah. direct so he did have a change in how he went about it which I talk about in my book but anyway um, the point is Jesus' parables which obviously we can overdo the emphasis on that but it's not insignificant that the Son of God the word, the incarnate word of God who cares a lot about words because he is the capital W word the Logos incarnate he comes and tells an awful amount of stories and clearly understands the importance of reaching people through this medium, which isn't as smash you round the head with every propositional point clear. Okay, so he's, he's, he doesn't come with the kind of clarity that we would always expect him to. He doesn't come with Excel spreadsheet clarity. Even if he does speak with clarity on loads of other occasions, why does he tell the parables? It's cuts an interesting thing. Mm. The disciples ask, why do you speak to us in parables? And there's that whole sense of the how the kingdom of God unfolds in that, in sometimes that subtle way, and some will get it and some won't get it. And there's going to be a sense I'm so, yes. I, he is, as he says, as he tells his parables, he is the sower, um, who's sowing the seed. So it's amazing how that, you know, the parable of the sower, where, where you get the explanation about how he, um, of that parable, which is one of the only times he actually explains, and uh, when they ask him, or where, where we see it recorded, he actually is showing that that's what we're doing. We're sowing seeds of people, and sometimes they're not going to get it. Yeah. And sometimes they, but the ones who are, they're going to get it in a very profound, powerful way. So you mix the story with proper didactic content, which is why the epistles and the, and the parables of Jesus so, well so yeah, well it's a compliment. Oh, that's a great place to, to draw the threads together actually because i think i think i also wonder whether as well that may be why in sometimes in the church we do get nervous about stories because you know we feel there's a risk right well if i tell a story and someone doesn't doesn't get it but i like you know jesus should give us confidence going no tell a story with real truth and real meaning behind it trust that those that the lord is is drawing will get it some yeah. won't yeah um but also also something i'm beginning to realize as i get older about the gospel intriguing people lewis got this of going yeah. You know, it draw people in. 
um, of going, you know, I think of the, um, you know, Paul and Athens where they said, we, we want to hear you. We want to hear you again on this yeah. subject. Yeah. And I think we've, we've somehow forgotten that, but, um, that is maybe something for, yeah. a, for, a, for another car park, for another car park. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed Aaron and I kind of opining. I hope this stuff in that's made you think. And also just, I want to end just by encouraging you to write because I think writing is a beautiful thing. And if there's some of you out there who are writers, I hope we've shared stuff that's helpful. If there's stuff that folks out there have been sitting there meaning to write, give it, give it a go. Yeah. And if there's people that think I'm just not a writer, that's cool. But even then, I'd encourage try journaling, try yes. try yeah. playing around with putting your thoughts down because even the access the journaling is a really helpful spiritual exercise. Absolutely. I think because yes. you're committing your articulating, thoughts, articulating yeah. your thoughts. Anyway, we have been uh, not in print on this occasion, but in digital audio form. We have been part of the gaps we I have think. been part of the gaps He's collectively been, collectively yes we are a gestalt we are entity we are a literary creation like uh, like george Eliot or, right. uh, or or others and uh, we will see you again in a car park on a road or somewhere definitely cooler because this car we is won't now see, we used to do this in the early podcast we will not see them we again. Won't hear us again. We unless i milk because it is so hot now i need to get that's a good point anyway good to, good to be with you we'll be back in a couple of weeks time bye for now bye, bye.